if anyone needs an outline, it's the same outline as we had last week, but uh, you may not have it with you or you may not have gotten one. So I encourage you to take one if that's the case. I understand that I misunderstood something this morning, and Marshall is not trying to get home here in the States. He is home, and he's watching us on live stream, what I understand this morning. So welcome home, Marshall. It's good to have you back with us, and we look forward to when you'll be physically with us sometime, we hope, in the near future. I would like to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for that covenant, that covenant which was sealed in the following day by the shedding of the blood of the God-man, our Redeemer and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, in some small way today as we open your word that you will help us to appreciate more deeply that sacrifice on his part as you sent your son and as he came willingly to die on the cross for our sins and for the sins of all mankind throughout history and throughout the future. We praise you for that gift, Lord. Certainly it is the pivotal point of all history as we think of the different dispensations of time, help us to appreciate and understand that truth today as we open our Bibles, as we seek to expound and think about and apply to our lives the truths which we will find there. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Certainly, certainly, the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary was the pivotal event of all history. And as a matter of fact, the different periods of time or stewardships that we've been talking about, the different dispensations, were designed, in addition to several other things that we've mentioned in our study, to bring us to a point where we could more deeply appreciate what Christ did for us there on the cross and what it means to each one of us today. So we come today to what we call the dispensation of the church, the dispensation of of the church. Now, as we enter into that discussion, right off the bat, we have to have a little bit of a discussion about the term church in terms of how we understand this period of time. Because we might more likely want to call it the dispensation of grace, because that's how it's described in Scripture. If we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, it says there, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you word. That was a statement by the Apostle Paul. The dispensation of the grace of God. Well, right there is the concept and a reference to this period of time. Uh, in Colossians chapter 125, it says, Where I have I made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. However, when we call this the dispensation of grace, 
it can suggest that the other periods in the dispensational eras were not by grace. It might suggest, and especially to those who are opposed to a literal interpretation of these events, it might propose the idea that there are different ways of salvation depending on which dispensation you are in. And those who are of a Reformed persuasion, they want to interpret that way. They want to say we're making multiple ways of salvation by doing that. So in order to avoid that accusation somewhat at least, we have called it the dispensation of the church, although it would probably be more biblical to call it the dispensation of grace. Now, it's not that there was not grace in other dispensations. Very clearly, there was grace. There was grace when God allowed Adam and Eve to be clothed with skins and lead the garden alive. There was grace when God preserved Noah and his family aboard the ark to rebuild and rebirth the human race. And we could cite many, many other situations where there was grace throughout the many dispensations that we have talked about. But we will call it for the moment to avoid misunderstanding the, uh, the idea of the dispensation of the church. The stipulations of this dispensation are extensive. If you want to understand them fully, you not only need to understand the epistles of the New Testament... That would be beginning in Romans through Jude, all those books of the Bible. But you would need also to go back and study in the gospel the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as he introduced this time period that would come to his disciples and trained them and taught them as how they should live and act in this period of time. The uh, different comparisons that we have made in our various studies uh, we'll continue to do here as well. And we'll look at uh, these four characteristics which we've looked at in all of the different dispensational periods. There is, first of all, the focus of this dispensation. And the focus is on those who become a part of the church, those who receive the gift of Jesus Christ and thereby enter into the blessings of the covenant that Jesus promised as a result of faith in him. Eternal life, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Uh, being able to be a part of the body of Christ and being a gifted with various spiritual gifts to make you unique and of great value and of great power in your service in the body of Christ. So many, many blessings that come our way as we put our trust in Jesus Christ. Focus on those who become a part of the church. Some others have said the focus is on called out believers and that's looking at it from God's point of view. So from man's point of view, it's those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. From God's point of view, it's though he has called out as believers. Now, as in every period of time, man has a responsibility. And it's very clearly the responsibility of those in the church to evangelize. When Jesus was about to ascend up into heaven, he gave them that great commission that you all remember, but let's read it so our ears can be, minds can be stimulated by it once again and look at a couple of thoughts from there. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. When we look at that verse in uh, the Greek language, 
we find that the, the go is not really the emphasis of the command. Really, there is an assumption there that you go. That going wherever you go, whether it's to foreign nations or to work or to school or out in your neighborhood or just shopping, as we go, we want to be ready to teach and to uh, witness to the Lord. The word there for teach is not just the idea of giving them the gospel, but it's the idea of discipleship. It's the idea of not only seeing them receive Christ, but seeing them going on and being discipled. It's the idea of discipling people. And baptizing, of course, is the idea of receiving Christ. The baptism acts out the death, burial, and resurrection and a person's participation in it as he experiences the ordinance of baptism. So we're to go out and evangelize the world. That's a great mission of the church. And we endeavor through our prayers, through our financial support to missionaries. A missions is important to this church. It's important to the heart of God. And we want to evangelize through our mission of missionaries and also through our own testimony in our neighborhood. But more than that, or not more than that, but in addition to that, is the fact that the responsibility in the church is to edify the body of Christ. That's what we're here for in part today, to be together, to encourage one another. I have been encouraged on different times when I didn't think my sermon went so well to know that there was other exhortation and encouragement and so forth going on among you people around the dinner table downstairs as you greeted one another. An interaction within the body of Christ as various people with different spiritual gifts interacted with one another and built one another up. It says in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the perfecting of the saints. Uh, perfecting here is not the idea of making completely flawless, but it's the idea of bringing a person to maturity. And also for the work of the ministry and the edifying of the body of Christ. So we have a twofold responsibility in the church, one to evangelize and two to edify one another in the body of Christ. Well, man is not going to completely succeed in all those things. Although we would endeavor and are challenged and, and motivate one another to try to reach out to the far corners of the world in evangelism, uh, we haven't gotten there. There's still a lot of areas of the world where they've never heard the gospel, where the gospel hasn't been translated into their language. And we just praise the Lord in his grand plan that in time of the tribulation, that is going to happen. The whole world will be reached with the gospel by the time the tribulation is over. And we're told that in Matthew and the Olivet Discourse. But we uh, seek to serve the Lord and follow the Lord. But as we find in Revelation chapters 1 to 3, as the Lord evaluates the seven churches, there are faults. There are things that were not accomplished to God's height of purpose. We're not going to turn there and read right now, but just as an example of that, there is a situation with the uh, Ephesian church. And the Ephesian church, I just clicked on something by accident here. There we go. They had left their first love. And all of the different seven churches had uh, different situations, different circumstances where they had failed the Lord. But the ultimate failure is in the church at large. When we, we talk about the church, 
uh, we are talking in some cases not about the body of Christ. In other words, those who are genuinely born again and are part of the body of Christ. But we must, when we talk about the church, talk about the broad scope of the church. We talk about all the religions of the world, actually, who call themselves Christian, that are Christian in their derivation, but not necessarily Christian in their current uh, practice and in their current belief. When the rapture takes place, the true church, those who have been baptized into the church by the Holy Spirit, they will be taken off this earth, and the people who will be left behind will still be a church here, quote-unquote. But it's an apostate church. It's a church made up of individuals who do not know the Lord as their Savior. And that apostate church will persist through the time of the uh, tribulation, and they will be judged, as is recorded in Revelation chapter 18, verse 6. It speaks there of the great mystery Babylon which is a representation of the apostate church which is left on earth uh, after the rapture of the church. And this great Babylon is finally judged, exposed, and destroyed by God as he brings judgment upon the world. It's recorded in Revelation chapter 18, verse 6 and following. It says there, reward her, speaking of the mystery Babylon, even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which she hath filled, fill to her double. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine. And she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. You know, there are many today who are involved in Christian ministry or Christian churches in the broad sense of the word that are there merely to exploit the organization. One of the parables of the New Testament is the mustard seed parable in which a tree grows up, a, a, a large tree, which, by the way, is uncharacteristic of the mustard seed. So, first of all, the tree is an anomaly to begin with. And then within this tree, there are many birds that appear. And uh, the picture here is a, a apostate or false church that has grown up and, and become a big bush, in other words, something abnormal, strange. And in its, in its branches are all these birds, which are individuals who have come into the church and, and are not really a part of the true church. So the, the plant represents the, the system, the organization that has grown out of proportion to what it really is. And the birds in it represent those who are taking advantage of the situation. And God will judge that. Uh, we are not here to use whatever advantage we may have by being a part of a group of people in a church for our own selfish purposes. Whether it be for financial gain or for social acceptance and elevation, or, or for uh, just trying to engrandize ourselves and build ourselves up in some way that's not true to being a servant of the Lord. So we have to be careful, even on our own walk, that we don't become a part of contributing to the failure of the church to be all that God wants it to be. Well, there comes then the judgment, and uh, that judgment... There we go. 
God's church, apostate church, is destroyed in Revelation chapter 18, and we have the dispensation of the church. Now, before we move on from there, we want to talk a little bit about some application of these things and how, how the church period, why it means so much. We're, you know, we're tremendously privileged to be able to have been born and live in this period of time. It is, it is a tremendous privilege because there's a period of time in which we have the whole canon of the Word of God, which I've said before. But it's also a period of time in which the ministry of Christ is especially intimate and meaningful for those who are a member of the church. We are part of the body of Christ. We'll say some more about it as we go along, but there are some amazing implications here uh, in this period in time in which we, we live. We, we learn, first of all, that uh, Jesus is the only way. It says, I am the way, or the Lord said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. As we go through the different dispensations later and, and draw a conclusion from each one, we'll find that each one demonstrates that although people may pursue other avenues of salvation, the only way of salvation is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find out and learn in this period of time especially that Christ is our faithful high priest. It says in Hebrews 2.17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to another passage, which, as I meditated on the message, uh, stood out to me more strongly as illustrating this point, and that is in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. And if you'll look with me as we begin reading at verse 23. And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests, which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest, who is set on the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. The concept of having an intercessor who is God and yet who is man sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven is incomprehensible. 
the right hand of God the Father in heaven on his throne is the place of favor. It's the, uh, it's the person that has the ear of him who is the God of all things and is to the God of all things. We have this, this complexity between the triunity of God and their various functional differences in this time in which we live, in which the Son is subordinate to the Father. He is in a position of the strength of the Father. You read through your Old Testament. I uh, quickly did a little study kind of at the last minute as I was trying to meditate on this and, and see how the right hand, you see if Jesus is described as sitting on the right hand of the Father in the Old Testament. And I wasn't able to be thorough enough to say conclusively that that's true, but I think it is true. Uh, I don't think at the, at the time of the Old Testament he sat at the right hand of the Father. I think he assumed that position when he came and ascended into heaven. In fact, that's implied here when it says, it says uh, we have such an high priest who is set on the right hand. That You read about Stephen when he was stoned. He saw the heavens opened. He saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Whereas you look at Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament and you see the Lord coming from a distance approaching the Father. And you look beyond the church age into the kingdom age and he's not sitting at the right hand of his Father on his Father's throne. He's sitting in Jerusalem on his own throne. So this, this is a unique period of time in which Jesus, our intercessor, who is our intercessor for all eternity, but nonetheless in this particular period of time, he especially is in the ministry of intercession sitting at the right hand of the Father. And if you read through your Old Testament also, you'll find out that the right hand of the Father is the place of his great power. When men wanted him to uh, act and intervene in history and do something powerful and strong, they would appeal to him to bear his right arm. Well, Jesus stands between his power and right arm and us. That he should flex it for our benefit and not for our judgment or hurt. He stands there pleading when the Satan could come and sh it does come to make accusation against us. It might do us good to appreciate and visualize a little bit when we have failed the Lord and need to ask his forgiveness. To visualize the process of heaven. That the accuser comes and accuses us before God and Jesus Christ who is right there at his right hand intercedes for us with the Father and said, Father, I shed my blood for his sin. I paid the price for his sin. And turns the curse into forgiveness and mercy and grace. It's an amazing thing. Just imagine the most influential person you can think of. It might be, a, we think of the president as being a very powerful person in our country. It might be an employer who's a powerful person. It, it might be just someone you respect, but... Uh, has some kind of control or influence in your life. It's a very great thing to have someone who is very, very close, their closest friend, their closest associate, with your name on his lips interceding for you. That would bring you a great benefit. And so it's a tremendous thing to have Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. And when we look more closely at this, we find out that he is a faithful high priest. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto the brethren, that he might 
be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make intercession for the sins of the people. And not only that, but as Christ sits at the right hand of his Father making intercession for us, he makes it as a very knowing and understanding intercessory. Because it, it tells us that we have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He is an intercessor who hasn't just been appointed uh, as some high influential person to get the best deal for us he could, but one who lived and faced what we face, who understands the struggle who understands, don't ever minimize the fact that he was God and therefore could not sin with the reality that he was genuinely tempted. And yet he was filled with the Spirit, he resisted the temptation, and he stayed true to the Lord. But he went through the same kind of trials that we do. He knows our infirmities. He is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us right now. Hebrews 7.25, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Now, when we think of him at the right hand of the Father today, uh, we recognize that he is on the throne with his Father at his Father's right hand. And he is, Christ is king today. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father on his throne. But the emphasis of this age, seeing that, is his intercessory work for us during the church age. The emphasis is his intercessory work and the close relationship we have with God through him. Romans 8.34 says, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now, He's on his father's throne at his father's right hand today. But someday when he comes back, after the tribulation period, he will take his place on the throne of David in, the new, in, in Jerusalem here on earth. Uh, and so it says in Romans, uh, Revelation 3.21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I also overcame and I'm set down with my father in his throne. Now he is speaking during the beginning of the tribulation period. And what he's saying is today I'm sitting on my father's throne in his right hand. But there's coming a day when I will sit on my own throne. Which is the throne of David on earth. And so the emphasis today is not on his kingship. But it in fact is on his intercession as a priest. It's on his priesthood. And when we get ahead of the story here and we try to get the kingdom involved now, people start thinking about Christ our king. Well, when they think about him coming back, they think about Christ our king. When they think about oppression for governments, they think of Christ our king because he will come and stop that oppression of our governments. But the really true emphasis of this time in which we live is the intercessory work of Jesus Christ with the Father in heaven on our behalf. That's a precious truth. And we don't want to miss that truth. Not only do we not want to miss that truth, we don't want to mislead other people in not seeing that truth. Many people who are of a Reformed persuasion 
and believe that the church and the kingdom are here today together, speak of King Jesus in that context. Very pronounced, very frequent, very loud. <laughs> because uh, they think of his royal kingship. And in doing so, even though they may believe in the intercessory work of Jesus Christ, it is lost in the focus on the authority and kingship of Jesus Christ. So I would suggest to you, although it's not wrong to call him King Jesus, that it's more appropriate in this time in which we live because of the emphasis that we need to place on his intercessory work and so that we don't mislead other people to talk about our Savior Jesus Christ and save our King Jesus Christ for the kingdom because that is the emphasis of the time in which we live. So the conclusion of this church age is in this summary statement. We now have the full revelation of Christ and salvation in him. We now have the full revelation of Christ and salvation in him. And what we learn from that is that there is salvation in none other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And if you look back at those periods of time in history and the different dispensations, they're all leading us to this conclusion. In their various periods of time, as we'll see in a little bit, that Jesus is the only way. But despite that, despite the tremendous offer in the new covenant of the New Testament in the church, there are still many who reject it. There are still many who don't follow the Lord. In fact, so much so that Paul wrote in Philippians 2.21, For all seek their own, not the thing which are Jesus Christ. I'm sure we're all guilty of that at times. We don't think on what the Lord would have. We seek our own way. We need to be challenged and think about that. But then there are some who are so consumed by their own way that they never stop who see their need of a Savior and ask for his forgiveness. And so the church age, the time in which we now know and have a full revelation of Christ and salvation in him. We move then to the next period of time, which is the kingdom period. kingdom period. Uh, this provides us with a bit of a, a confusion here because the covenant for the kingdom period is also called the new covenant. And this is uh, really an amazing thing. Now we call it the kingdom covenant, but technically it's the new covenant and uh, we should maybe say the new covenant. We should maybe see for the, the covenant that Christ instituted, the covenant toward the church and then the covenant with Israel, the covenant toward the people of God, Israel, toward Israel. But, and then we don't want to confuse, though, because that covenant depends upon the covenant with the church. It ends up being a foundation for both the church and for the kingdom. And we'll see how that works as we look at this just a little bit. And so I would like to do something here. Uh, I uh, had a lot of my material ready a while back. So last night I tried to get a little bit more familiar with this new covenant to Israel. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. 
Jeremiah chapter 31. Listen, 13 times in the Old Testament, the new covenant for the kingdom, which was with, with the nation of Israel, is mentioned in Scripture. And in the New Testament, it's mentioned at least three, maybe four times. So this is not a fly-by-night little uh, consideration here. This is something that carries through majorly in the Scriptures. So look at Jeremiah chapter 31, and uh, I'm going to just look at one aspect of this and come back to this one in a minute. Here's what it says. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now here is a distinguishing feature. This is described as a covenant, a new covenant, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You know, we've talked down through the different dispensational covenant periods of time, how they were directed at particular individuals. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were the two individuals, and they were the father and mother of the race. So when God set down direction to them, it applied to the whole race. They were the whole race, and the whole race propagated from them. And uh, when the Adamic covenant came, they were cursed and put out of the garden. And, and again, it was a covenant or a curse that applied to all mankind. And then we come to the Noahic covenant, and again, Noah became the father of the nations, of all peoples, and then again, the Noahic covenant is a covenant that is applicable to everybody who would, who would come after. But the next one we come to is the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant was made specifically with Abraham. And the promises were specifically toward Abraham. Remember, we looked at those promises There was one promise that involved somebody besides Abraham. And that was the problem that he would curse those that cursed Abraham's people or bless them that blessed them. But other than that, the covenant was directed toward Abraham. And then we come after that to the covenant of the law and the Mosaic covenant. And the Mosaic covenant was given to the nation of Israel, Mount Sinai. So here again, we have a group. So we, we went from a univer- covenant that had universal direction to one that was just directed toward Abraham and then narrowed just directed toward Israel. Well, then we come to the New Testament covenant of the New Testament of the blood of Christ, and it's offered to everybody. So again, it's a universal offer on condition that you come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. But the covenant is an offer to all mankind, so it's a universal covenant. But when we get to the new covenant of the kingdom, it's again focused on the nation of Israel. And so we read here, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. That sets this new covenant off from the new covenant that Christ made that formed the church. This is a new covenant that God will make in the future, yet in our future, with the nation of Israel, as he describes here. Now, if you want to understand a little bit about this covenant, you go through these Old Testament passages and read about the institution of the covenant and the things that are around that institution and help you understand what the new covenant is. And we're not going to read all of them, but we're going to go through a select group, quite a few, 
of these different references to the new covenant with Judah and with, uh, with Israel and, and the context and see what this new covenant consists of. And this is what you're going to see. You're going to see that this new covenant with Israel is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham way back in the early history of the world. So look with me. We're going to come back to Jeremiah 31. So you might want to keep your bulletin or finger there. But look at Jeremiah 32, beginning in verse 36. I'm going to move on. You can catch up with me if you can't get there quite in time. But Jeremiah 32, 36. And now therefore thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, which is Jerusalem, whereof ye say it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence, Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, whether I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in great wrath, and I will bring them again into this place. I will cause them to dwell safely. There's two things there. Keep, keep your eyes open for things that are predicted here that are part of this new covenant that are a fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. And we have them coming back to the land here, and God promised Abraham a land. And we also see that they will dwell safely. God promised Abraham blessings. And certainly security is a blessing. Certainly it is. Verse 38. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. It's an eternal covenant, by the way. Okay. For the good of them and of their children after them. And here's a statement, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. He makes a covenant with them. Who's them? It's the, it's the nation of Israel. This is the kingdom covenant. But I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good. Blessing promised in Abraham's covenant. And I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. Again, a fulfillment. That's uh, quite a statement with all the controversy over that land today that God makes that statement so clear. With my whole heart. No reservations, no compromises. Verse 42, For thus saith the Lord, like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. Blessing. And fields shall be, brought in this, shall be bought in this land, whereof ye say, it is desolate without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Men shall buy fields for money and subscribe evidences and seal them and take witnesses in the hand of Benjamin and in the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah and in the cities of the mountains, and in the cities of the valley, and in the cities of the south, for I will cause their captivity to return, saith the Lord. What that's saying is this land which has been devastated by the Babylonian conquests and looks barren and stripped and hopeless will someday be so valuable that people will negotiate to buy it during the kingdom period. This is an interesting statement too, by the way, concerning uh, how the Bible endorses ownership of property, ownership of private property, and also the orderly conduct of maintaining boundary lines and identifying properties so that they're legally identified. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 50. 
Declare ye among the nations and publish and set up a standard. Publish and conceal not. Say, Babylon is taken, Baal is confounded. Merodach, who's one of their gods, is broken in pieces. Her idols are confounded, her images are broken in pieces. For out of the north there cometh up a nation against her, which shall make her desolate, and none shall dwell therein. They shall remove, they shall depart, both man and beast. I'm wondering if that, that force out of the north isn't the king of the north of Daniel 11, and Gog and Magog that we talked about. That would, that would fit here well. Verse 4, In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together. Going and weeping they shall go and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. So they're saying as they are released from the captivity, as, as their oppressors are conquered and they're left free, they're going to be setting their face toward Zion to go back and become a part of this new covenant and its blessing and promises. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 16. 59, 16, Isaiah. And he saw that there was no man. This is uh, God looking down the earth. Remember, we talked a lot about this. Wondered that there was no intercessor. He couldn't find anybody that could intercede between mankind and God. They were all sinners. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him. You remember, if God gave us what we deserve, he'd wipe out all his creation. So in order to avoid doing that, he had to provide the intercessor himself, which was himself. He brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, according will he repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the islands he will repay recompense. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. This is his people, this is Israel. My spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth forevermore. Isaiah chapter 61, look at verse uh, 8. For I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering, and I will direct their work in truth. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and their seed shall be known among the Gentiles, and their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them, and they are the seed which the Lord hath blessed. Moving over to the book of Hosea. We find these statements. Therefore, behold, I allure her and bring her to the wilderness. It's very interesting because Ezekiel also talks about bringing her to the wilderness. And speak comfortably unto her, and I will give her vineyards from thence, and the valley of Achor for a door of hope, so possession of the land again. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me as she. And shalt not call me Bali. 
For I will take away the names of Baalim out of their mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with creepy things to the ground, and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth and will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. See, the Abrahamic covenant was eternal. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and thou shalt know the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 33. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out, will I rule over you. And I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered with a mighty hand, with a stretched out arm, and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there I will plead with you face to face. Like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant." And I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against thee. I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Jumping over to Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 25. And I will make with them a covenant of peace, and will cause the evil beasts to cease out of the land. They shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them in the places round about my hill a blessing. And I will cause the shower to come down in his season. And there shall be showers of blessing. Does that sound like a familiar phrase? I think we sang that song this morning. I didn't plan it that way, but that's the way it was. And the tree of the field shall yield her fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. And they shall be safe in their land, and shall know that I am the Lord. When I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them out of the hand of those that serve themselves of them. Finally, one last one or two. Ezekiel 37. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them. Abrahamic covenant again. Multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel, and my sanctuary shall lie in the midst of them forevermore. And then Zechariah chapter 9, verse 11. As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit where is no water. Remember how he said the Abrahamic covenant was to a particular people, but it was an unconditional, unconditional covenant that God promised them he would fulfill. And then there came the Mosaic covenant. And the Mosaic covenant promised blessing too, but it was conditional. They had to live according to the law. And they had to follow God in the stipulations of the law. And then they would receive blessing. Well, that creates a problem because the blessings that they were unconditionally promised here uh, are, are missed because they can't live up to the covenant here. So we've got conflicting covenants. But Jesus Christ in this church time 
uh, in preparation for time, died on the cross of Calvary and paid the price for all men's sin. You know, I, I kind of think, you know, at the end of every dispensation, there was a judgment. The great judgment at the end of the law dispensation was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And in that great judgment, all the sins of all mankind were laid on him, and he paid the price. So now, through Jesus Christ, it was possible for the person under the law to receive blessing because he could get forgiveness of his sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ's intercession solved the conflict problem of the Mosaic law. And God, no man could do it. It took God. God had to do it. We just read about that. So God came down and gave his life and became the intercessor and paid the penalty of the sin of those who are under the law. And now the unconditional promise of Abraham and the conditional promise of the law, which should now be given because Jesus Christ had paid the price of death for the law, is manifest in the kingdom. It's amazing how it all works together in God's marvelous grand plan, but it all circles around the death of Jesus Christ and the church age. So we're going to look at that a little bit more, I hope. But I'd like to challenge you this morning to uh, focus as we close on the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? Just visualize in your mind for a moment. God the Father on his throne in all his majesty. Daniel chapter 7 actually is only place in the Bible where there is possibly a portrayal of God the Father. As you visualize this, just let me, let me read what that passage says. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. Can you comprehend a person that is that great and think that our Savior gave up the, the kenosis gave up the glory and all the try all the all the glory and praising and beauty and became simply a baby and grew into a man and was killed cruelly on the cross of Calvary walked with those who came before us who were just like us. And he saw their hurts. He saw their trials. He saw their tears. He saw their laughter. He saw their need. And he went to the cross to die for that. And when he ascended, he ascended to the right hand of the Father we've seen here in heaven. And now we have a representative on our behalf with the God of the universe. 
And despite all that pomp and all that attention and everything that's going on, as we come to Christ in prayer, we have access to the Father, the God of the universe, the God of creation, the King. What a privilege. What a privilege that Jesus is there to intercede for us, that the flame of his throne not break loose on us. What a blessing it is that we have Jesus Christ intercede for us, that our requests for help and encouragement can come through one who understands what it's like and can express it to his Father, being both God and man. Oh, what a tremendous privilege, what a tremendous opportunity, what a tremendous time to live. Father in heaven, help us as we meditate on these tremendous great things that we can't really even fully begin to comprehend of how significant they should be as we look at our relationship to God. How humbled we should be that God would pay attention to us each individually. How encouraged we should be that we have access to God through such a one. How eager we should be to proclaim the priesthood of Christ in this era in which we live to all that are around us. For he is the high priest that brings salvation. He is the high priest who makes intercession. Lord, may you not miss the tremendous ministry of the intercessory work of Jesus Christ on our behalf at the throne of God at his right hand. Lord, convict us if we've neglected to see ourselves in light of the holiness of God. And bring us on our knees and on our faces, humbling ourselves before you for salvation, for petition, whatever it may be, Lord, that you want to do in each life. As we sing, Lord, we pray you would move in our hearts, move in our way with those who are here, with those who are listening at home. Lord, may we meditate and understand the tremendous position and privilege we have in the intercessory priesthood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. In his name we pray. Amen.